My name is Brie Castellini. I used to be a spy. My name is Chris Cherry. I used to live in 2019. And this is Burn Noticed, where hindsight is 2020, and we rewatch weekly the USA television masterpiece Burn Notice about Michael Weston, a spy. Throughout this podcast in the year 2020, we will be rating each episode on whether it is an episode of television, a great episode of television, or a great episode of Burn Notice. If you want to know what complicated calculations go into these ratings, go back to 2019, listen to our intro episode, or wait until the end, where we'll explain them again. Also, if you or anyone you know knows Jeffrey Donovan, aka Wicked Pissa JD, please get in touch. Also, you can send us questions, suggestions, compliments, and absolutely no criticism of any kind. It's 2020, but the rules are the same. You can send them to burnnoticedpodcast at gmail.com or to our Twitter at burnnoticedpod. That's burnnoticed with a D. Because it's 2020. It's 2020, where you put D in stuff. Exactly. In 2020, we're putting the D in. <laughs> I'm Brie Castellini, and I used to not put the D in stuff, but now it's 2020, so I'm contractually obligated to. Why did you sign that contract? Because it's 2020. Fair enough. It's, it is 2020. And the thing about this is that for listeners, this episode hopefully came right after last week's episode. Uh, hopefully. We can't be but, sure. But for us, it's been a while. Yeah, it's been like a month and some change since we've recorded an episode because we we'd gotten you guys know this we talk about it every week we record two episodes at a time so we general and we try to record once a week so we we generally get like pretty far ahead of ourselves but i kept getting sick and then i was traveling and then it was christmas and uh one thing led to another and this is the latest we've ever recorded a burn notice episode before it is set to be released so you are actually hearing us only like eight or nine days prior to when this episode will be, you know, in your feeds, which is making me extremely nervous. Um, uh, we but... <laughs> are dangerously close to being relevant. We're dangerously close to not only being relevant, but also not recording early enough for the post-production turnaround that is required to make this great show hit your ears. Uh, which Brie was discussing with me uh, before we started, and it is very complicated. It's extremely complicated in that I don't pay attention and it takes me like three hours <laughs> and I hate it. Editing podcasts is the worst. Um, so let's uh, jump into the actual episode, which is let's an episode that. about the television show Burn Notice, specifically the episode in season two, episode 11 called Hotspot, which aired January 29th, 2009, a.k.a. two days before my 17th birthday and was oh, written... Boy. I know. It's really exciting um, that that happened and had no effect on me whatsoever. Uh, it was written by Ben we Watkins. Are, we are so close to like exactly 10 years out. I know. It's like new decade. And also we are a, just ex- almost exactly a decade ahead of when this episode was released. It's, we're walking in the footsteps of giants, Chris. I've always said so. And those giants are, in this case... <laughs> Writer Ben Watkins, uh, who you'll remember was the uh, client of the week a couple of weeks ago, um, with he was the he was like the accountant of a rapper. 
He so was. That's his claim to fame. Uh, and it was directed by Steven Sergic, who directed 10 Burnout's episodes in total, including the season one finale. Uh, he also directed seven episodes of Psych, three episodes of Jessica Jones, and four episodes of The Umbrella Academy, which are all better shows than Burn Notice. Yes. <clears throat> I mean, I love Burn Notice. That's why I have a podcast about it. So, uh, Chris, would you like to hear the IMDb description of this episode? I mean, I don't. I wouldn't like to, but let's do it. I really like your team spirit. While the thing Fee- is, I can, I can read it. But the audience can't. So this isn't for me. It's for you guys. I love you guys. (laughs) Maybe someday we should release our notes, like our episode notes. Because sometimes, especially me, uh, because you like to like read pretty specifically the notes that you write down. But sometimes I have like writing only jokes that uh, you bully me into revealing. But I feel like are best like read in your own head. So if you guys ever, if you guys want to see the notes from the episodes that we record because we have like how many pages is this? it's an eight page document where we are this podcast that you're listening to right now is created from an eight page document that i have compiled because it's i'm hosting this episode this week uh so if you guys are ever interested in seeing what that looks like let us know and we'll release it send us an email or tweet at us how listen to the intro of this episode restart that bad boy that sounds very much like a thing that would be a Patreon goal. Ooh, if if you would give us money for a Patreon, even like $1 a month, definitely let us know because I will 100% make a Patreon. Yeah. Do it, cowards. Do you think that that's a good goal, uh, a good way of getting people to give you money, Chris? Calling them cowards on a podcast? Yes. Do you think that's persuasive? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, it think worked. That's a good energy to enter 2020 in. It worked for Marty McFly. <laughs> well, we're Don Marty McFly. Like, I dare you. I dare you to give us give us money for our Patreon. Coward. Come on. Chicken. <laughs> um. So 20 minutes ago when we started this conversation, I was going to read you the IMDb description for this episode, which is called Hotspot. Uh, and that description reads... While Fee tries to help Michael by getting the identity of the man who may have tried to blow him up, Michael tries to help a football player who is in trouble with a gang of car thieves. The word up is doing a lot in that sentence. It is doing a lot in that sentence. The other thing that I would like to point out about this description is that she's getting the identity of a man who may have tried to blow him up. Is there something unclear about Michael's front door being exploded. Was it, maybe, is there a subtlety that I missed in the last two episodes where they're like, maybe he didn't try to blow Michael up. He just gave him a gift. Of bomb. Of we know bomb. Michael love bomb. <laughs> well, if I remember correctly and I don't, do we learn his name in this episode or we already know who he is? I think the question is that like, he, no, we don't know maybe, his name yet, Chief. But Chief, we like I, the scene where she gets his name is extremely important, Chris, and it's in this oh, episode. True. All right, but like, all right, he may have someone definitely tried to blow him up. Maybe this guy. I guess I don't know. I feel like this IMDb description writer fell a little short, and I'm not impressed. I was okay? thinking as me? I was watching cowards. I'm not Cow- impressed. Fucking chicken. Fucking chicken. What are you going to do? Not donate to my Patreon? Fuck you. Bagok. 
Like a chicken says. Oh my uh, god. Were you gonna say something or do you want to get into the weeds? Let's get into the weeds. Uh, okay, so the beginning of this episode. Uh, actually, this is a fun fact. Um, apparently, this is my week where I just get distracted and don't actually talk about the episode that we're recording. Uh, but fun fact, when I went to watch my episode for this week, um, I watched the first five and a half minutes of last week's episode and was taking notes as if it was my episode. And it wasn't until like five and a half minutes in that I realized I'd already watched that episode and that we had already recorded a podcast about it. It sounds like it left an impression. <laughs> yeah, it really didn't, apparently. So I don't remember episode, what it was. It was uh, Michael had had just gotten blowed up and Sam had a short car chase and then his car got destroyed and he was really upset. So it was the premiere, like the winter premiere. You should have remembered mm-hmm. that. Yeah, but I didn't. Um, so, but this, but I think what confused me is that this, the actual episode that I am recapping today also had a previously on burn notice segment, which is not common for burn notice on Hulu. Uh, and I was like, why is there a previously on if the episode came out like a week later? That seems unnecessary, but okay. Uh, so after that happened, Fiona and Michael argue about who Michael is investigating his own bombing for. This is like a super expositional conversation that they're having. They're like walking down a street and they're like recapping the episode, even though they had just played a recap for the audience. So I'm not really sure what the point of this was, but basically Fiona's mad that Michael is investigating the bombing, not for himself, the person who was bombed, but for Carla. And nothing comes of it, but that's what gets us to uh, a business. They walk in front of a business, which is near Michael's apartment, who may have security footage of the bomber. So they just have to have an expositional conversation to get up to the business, I guess. Yeah, got to like like set up stakes and things. It's possible that the writer of this episode didn't know there was going to be a recap. Even if he didn't know that, it was a bad conversation, Ben Watkins. Oh, it, was it did bad. not sound like a conversation that two human beings were having. It sounded like I mean, that's never a, was, been the standard for burn notice. It sounded know. like a vaguely meta like you know, last week on burn notice, but like it, like found footage style, you know, like they were almost aware that the audience was there. I don't know. It was yeah. it was just it was one of the most unreal conversations that a burn notice episode has ever had and um that's saying a lot. So anyways, Michael adopts his blue-collar white trash voice to... Actually, it's really specifically like a Louisiana, Georgia E1 in this, I think. I think it was Louisiana. Okay. Well, it sounds like his general blue-collar white trash voice. Uh, And his basically the way that he's going to get the security footage from this company to see if his bomber is on it is he is going to, like, schedule a replacement for their security stuff and uh, take the old one with him. And the person who is in the office with him is like, I got to call my supervisor and he wants to talk to you. And so Michael like carries on like a very casual. No, No, this is very important. Like, no, the person calls the security company. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The security company that he's claiming to work for. Exactly. And the guy on the line is like, who are you? What is this? What are you doing? This is illegal. (laughs) You were breaking the law, my good bitch. 
but but he's on the phone and so while he's like ranting at him michael is just like oh yeah man steve just can never get his paperwork right and so he's just sort of rambling and like switching out the machine um and that <gasps> oh my god only talk like that <laughs> Did I do my recap in Michael Weston's blue collar white trash voice? Yeah. I mean, again, he's doing That's Louisiana. You're doing like extreme real awesome. deep south. Real deep. Isn't Louisiana deep south? What's deep south? Yeah, Louisiana is very specific. Louisiana. Louisiana. Yeah, is, that, it's, is that how Louisianans pronounce the state? Sure. Louisiana. Louisiana. <laughs> Louisiana. Oh. Um, okay, well, that bit is done. Uh, so on his way out, in order to, like, cover himself, um, because he knows that the jig is almost up, he has apparently programmed something that he can trigger from his cell phone, which calls all of the phones in the office at once, which is certainly not suspicious at all. And this is, like, the most Batman gadget he's ever had. Mm -hmm. And he says, it's really easy and simple in the spy voiceover later. So I'm like, okay, Michael, I guess it is. And then also the other insane spy tip that happens during this cold open is that um, if you need to leave an office quickly, just run. It's fine. People run out of office buildings all the time. And he says it so earnestly. And I'm like, do they? What office buildings do you work in? Uh, Well, the way that he actually does it is fine, though. Like, He says, like, run, but what he's doing is kind of, like, jogging. And, like, the point, like, again, what actually happens in the episode is that there's a guy closing a gate, and he, like, runs to, like, hey, I need to go. And so it seems like he's running so he can get in before the gate gets closed. Like, it makes more sense in context than, like, as a general rule. But, yeah, as a general rule, people run out of office buildings all the time. (laughs) It is, and it is more of like a jog, like a, like a, you know. Just it's a, still kind run. of extremely suspicious. I mean, it is. Every every bit of his behavior during this sequence is suspicious. So yeah. I guess and there is something to be said about being like so bald faced, like confident that you're doing nothing wrong, that it confuses people around you. But that's not the spy tips we're getting. And so, like, he runs out because uh, the. They have called the police. The security company has called the police on him because mm-hmm. he stole the security footage. And mm-hmm. he gets in his car, he goes away, and it never matters ever again. Yep. Ever. Just like everything in Burn Notice, nothing has stakes except for the very specific plot of the week. And even sometimes that doesn't have stakes. Like, what What if in the middle of this episode he just got arrested for that? Or for one of the, like, 18 other things that he and Fiona and Sam have done in the course of a job. Exactly. Like, no one's one's backing him up. In, like, a normal spy situation, like, he'd probably have, like, desk grunts who are, like, assigned to him just to, like, clean up the mess of, like, the random misdemeanors that he causes during the middle of his missions. He doesn't have that. The whole point is that he's been burned. So there's just some poor police detective with, like, a murder wall of yarn and photos and blurry security footage who's like, what's happening? There's got to be a connection. (laughs) I want that so bad. 
I that that should be like a season finale, and then like a whole season of Burn Notice. Uh, I'm pitching to you, ten years in the past, should be about like the ramifications of all of the nonsense that they've done, all the cars they've stolen, all the buildings they've blown up, and it should just be like a cleaning up your messes season. Yeah. Which would be or, interesting because it kind of turns our, like, good guys into the bad guys. Like, they have to, you know, fight against the police force who's trying to, like, close in on them. And, like, the police force isn't wrong. These people are, like, reckless and dangerous to the citizens of Miami, which we'll get into during this episode in particular. Um, but, like, that would be, like, a really cool, don't you think, like, kind of turn on, like, what their normal thing is? Yeah. Oh, like, definitely. They, they become the villains? Yeah, exactly. I mean... The show would never, ever, ever do that. But yes. <sighs> well, fine. Um, so I think that's the end of the cold open. So uh, after is. this whole thing, he meets with Fee at the apartment and she reads a fortune cookie out loud that says, the one who loves you is closer than you think. And then like stares at Michael and then he's not paying attention. So she gets frustrated, slams open his fortune cookie and reads, the one who burned you is closer than you think. And immediately Michael is like, what? Wait, what does it say? And then she just glares at him and he's like, oh, you just wanted attention. Um, and I thought that was funny. Also, I've been watching Poldark recently and this is an extremely Explain Poldark scene. for the audience. <laughs> So, you know how I have a bit on this podcast where I'm always watching a different show and I would rather be talking about that than Burn Notice? Well, yeah, right now, a bit that you have? <laughs> right now, it's for comedy. <laughs> for comedy, you know, on this comedy podcast that we do. Uh, so, Poldark is a PBS masterpiece theater show uh, that has five seasons or is about to have five seasons. I'm not sure which. Uh, starring Aiden Turner. And it's about a moody like emo Cornish guy right after the American revolution who stares at the sea and ignores his wife. It's all you need to know about the show. It's set in the past. It's in Cornwall and he stares at the sea and ignores his wife. And it's the worst. I'm so angry. The only reason I started watching Poldark uh, over Christmas break is because my mom and I caught up on Outlander which is the show that's actually good that I've been watching recently. And I went, I Googled like other shows that are like Outlander, but like aren't other Outlander mom shows. I'm Shut up. <laughs> How dare you? My mom also loves imply. Outlander and Poldark. And Outlander is a great show. Poldark is not, but we were watching it because I got sick. And also we needed a, uh, you know, non Outlander show to watch. And um, Outlander is defined by uh, having really interesting character choices, a man who totally loves his wife and thinks she's rad and also time And travel. doesn't care Poldark. at all about the sea. Yes. It, actually, Mr. the main Outlander. character Outlander gets deeply seasick. Like, really, exactly. like, horrifically seasick. But Poldark fucking stares at the sea and ignores his wife. And it's the He worst. just wants to fuck that sea so bad. He certainly doesn't want to fuck his wife. No, he does. But he ignores her while he does it. It's the... Poldark is a terrible just, show about a shitty up. husband. <laughs> he just, he's having sex with his wife, but his eyes just turn out the window. As he the, can't climax as the waves, unless there's a body of water in his sight line. The waves laugh against the shore, sensually. Anyways, Michael is ignoring Fiona and it reminded me of Poldark, and I hate Poldark. I watched three seasons in two days, but I hate it. Um, anyways, so... <laughs> Oh, boy. 
So at the end of this scene, they finally find the visage of the bomber from the security footage that they're going through. Uh, and I guess that's the end of the cold open. So Sounds like a less good end earlier. of the cold open. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, we know what the bomber looks like now. Uh, and we also know he's wearing a... Uh, I guess he's wearing his work clothes because like they know what uniform he's wearing. And they're like, well, I guess that's where he works. And he does work there. So He actually works there. Yeah, it's yeah. he was just he was the wearing the outfit is astounding. Yeah, I'm like he was. You know how like you swing by the store on the way home from work. Mm-hmm. It was that, but for bombing. Yeah, this was his errand. It's like I got to pick up milk, diapers. I got to bomb this guy's house. Uh, then I got to go cash a check, and then I'll be home for dinner. And I'm not gonna change clothes the whole time because that would be inefficient. Anyways. Um, so the next day at lunch with Sam, we learn that while Fiona is following up on a lead about the bomber at the place that he apparently works, Sam wants to go to a Dolphins game with Michael, and he knows a way to score some tickets. Smelling a rat and a job, Michael presses him, and Sam admits that the person who will give them these great tickets to the Dolphins game for a bro date needs a favor. Cut and Michael to- doesn't want it, because tickets are almost <laughs> money. Yeah, but the funny the funny thing about this is that even though he like is of course reluctant to take a job because he's always reluctant to take a job, he can't use the excuse that he's too busy because he's not because the only person doing work on Michael's like spy life this episode is Fiona. Fiona is the only one doing literally anything about it, so he can't even say no, I'm busy with my other stuff because he's not. Fiona's doing the work for him, so this is just him generally not wanting to do work, not for he any reason. Want- he just doesn't want to. Yeah. He just doesn't want to. He wants want to, to stare out the sea. Ugh! Fuck you, Poldark! Is his name Poldark? Uh, Ross Poldark. Wait, what's his first name? Ross. You know, like, the R- worst friend. Ross? Yeah. Like, I don't... That seems it, wrong. That seems like a name it? that... It's super wrong. <laughs> that doesn't seem like a name that should have existed then. His wife's name is Demelza. So that wait, say that again. Demelza, D M E L Z A. Demelza and Ross. <laughs> Chris, I'm telling you, this show is trash. Demelza and Ross. <laughs> Holy shit, Chris, we. <laughs> We can't get into this right now, but I'm glad that you're starting to understand what I have been through recently. Anyways, they go meet this guy with Dolphins tickets, who I guess has them because he used to play for them. I don't know. But anyways, now he coaches uh, high school football, and his name is Coach Martin. And it turns out he doesn't actually need a favor. It's for one of his players. So Corey, Michael B. Johnson Jensen, is a good kid who got into a fight the other day with a guy who's bad news, a local gangster who now wants Michael B. Jordan dead. Michael B. Jordan and his sister are staying at the coach's place for safety. And coach just wants the boys, Michael, uh, not Michael B. Jordan, just regular Michael and Sam, to go talk to this kid to see if there's any way that they can help him. The important thing is that, holy shit, it's Michael B. Jordan. I know, and he's great. He's treated terribly by this show, because everyone is treated terribly by this show. Of course. But it's Michael B. Jordan, and it's awesome. It's one of those instances where, like, you have a truly, truly talented actor on the show, 
and then it throws into sharp relief how much worse everyone else is at acting. Not that they're bad at acting. None of these people are, like, bad at acting. But, like, he's very good at acting. Yeah, there's, and, there is a marked difference in quality. Uh, so I'm going to refer to the character of Corey, who is a teenage football star, as Michael B. Jordan this entire episode. Uh, Obviously. that's how my notes are, and I refuse to do anything else. So no, yeah, it's Michael B. Jordan. It's Michael B. Jordan. So on their way to go talk to Michael B. Jordan, uh, Carla is waiting for Michael. And so Michael's like, I'll meet you later, Sam. I have to go talk to Trisha Helfer. We also, sh- should we talk about the reason that Michael B. Jordan got into a fight? Uh, that comes up in a later scene. Oh, I thought. Oh, okay, cool. Because we'll Fiona is a little fired up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we'll get to that. Don't worry, Chris. It's been a month and a half since we've recorded an episode, but it's like riding a bicycle. I sometimes fall off. <laughs> so uh, at Carla's office that Michael is blindfolded upon entry for, she asks for an update on his bombing investigation and then gives him a file that he's only allowed to look at while in the office instead of taking it home. That's the end of the scene. But it's again, not I said it's not weirdly sexually charged. But it's kind of sexually charged. I mean, poor Trisha Helfer. She can't help it. She radiates sexuality. So anytime she's in a scene with any human being, it's a little bit sexy. Yeah. But there, like, there is a bit where Michael's like, I, do you want me to work with my hands tied? Or like, I can't work with my hands tied. And then Carla's like, you do fine with your hands tied. <laughs> and they just like share a look. It's like, are we going to do this? Are we going to do this now? And then they don't. And it's a great disappointment to everyone. But yeah, nothing really happens in that scene. Uh, But back at the loft, Michael reveals to Sam what he learned from the scene that we didn't actually get to see. Carla doesn't think that the bomber is local, which I guess is something that they know to be false. Because this guy was wearing a uniform of a job that exists only in Miami. Um, Because he is a ding dong. Michael apparently gave her some wild goose chase requests for, um, like, the next stage of the investigation that she thinks he's doing. And he and Carla have another meeting soon while he works on the actual case. It's important to note that this conversation with Sam is happening outside of his loft in the driveway. Because up at the loft, Fee is entertaining Michael B. Jordan and his sister, and Sam is heading out to get pizza. Sam also warns Michael that this case has Fee, quote, a little fired up. I assumed this meant that she was super horned up for Michael B. Jordan, which I was on board with because I forgot that he was a teenager. Um, But then we get upstairs and I remember that this is 2009 and Michael B. Jordan is definitely a teenager. And so Fiona is actually just fired up for justice. Yeah. Uh, And it's... (laughs) This is a fun episode of Burn Notice. It really is. It's a fun episode of Burn Notice. So it really annoys me that we have to do this thing that we're doing, that we're about to do right now. What, explain why the fight occurred? Yes. Yeah, so we're going to unpack this, but let me get to what we're unpacking. So remember, Michael B. Jordan got into a fight with a guy who is, quote, bad news. But that's all the coach actually knows. But now that we have Michael B. Jordan in the flesh, yuck, 
uh, we learn that this fight that he had occurred because a gang guy named Felix took Tanya, Michael B. Jordan's sister, for a ride in his car and then attacked her, which she narrowly escaped from because Burn Notice absolutely does not have the capacity to deal with a rape plot. And thank God they also realized this. Upon discovering what happened to his sister, I think he like found her crying in the street or something. Michael B. Jordan went after Felix with a baseball bat. Fiona recommends that the next time he should use a golf club because it allows for greater force to a smaller area, which is a bonus tip that I really appreciated. <laughs> so um, do you want to do you want to talk about the fact that it, it was a almost child rape that led to the entire plot line of this episode? I mean, I don't want to talk about it, but we have to talk <laughs> about it. It's. I mean, they, have, they go it didn't like have to be. It didn't have to be, and they go full euphemism so that like it's super vague. But um, and like, yeah. which even highlights how much it didn't have to be. Yep. And I don't know why. Like, it doesn't. It doesn't matter. Even the no. thing, because the like because at. This is the reason that Fiona is fired up. Yeah. So actually, let me get to the next part of my recap because I kind of talk about it. So Michael is detecting Fiona being fired up and asks to talk to her like outside because he uh, is not similarly horned up for justice, apparently, and thinks that they should just send the kids to the police. Fiona argues passionately that they should not go to the police and that getting the kids out of town is an unacceptable solution because they need a plot to follow while Michael learns about his bomber. Michael accuses Fiona of letting her emotions get the better of her, which has never happened to Michael Weston. And I guess this interaction is meant to imply that Fiona has some kind of history with sexual violence or that she, as a woman, is particularly sensitive to sexual violence against other women. In either case, she dramatically states that she feels very passionate about this case. And then we watch Fee and Michael simultaneously turn towards the teens and then cut to a shot that zooms in dramatically on them, ending in a still frame with the lower third identifying them as the clients. So the premise of this episode is that a teenage girl was almost raped and then her brother beat up her almost rapist and that Fiona is super fired up about getting her justice. And... The implication is that this crime in particular hits Fiona somewhere uh, where it does not hit Michael. And this show is fully not prepared to deal with what that means. And I'm super curious what you think the um, implication of her passion is. I, okay. It's really vague. I don't think I read it as... She's upset because she's particularly sensitive to this as a woman. Cool. So you think it's misogyny, not yeah. uh, hinting at a, a dark past for Fiona. I agree yeah. with you. Only women care about I think rape. Yeah. I think the thing is, at the end of the scene, Fee wins the argument. Uh-huh. And, like, it does not seem like the show is arguing that she is wrong to be passionate about this. Right. But it does imply that she is unreasonably horned up for justice about this crime in particular. I mean, it does. Like, it's... 
Like, yeah. It's not it's, as bad as it could be, but, like, it's just, it feels just, uh, I there, don't like it. Yeah. And, and this is the only time that it really comes up. Like, yeah. they don't really explore the implications of Fiona's fire or, like, what almost happened to Tanya ever again. Like, they pretty much just, like, go about it. Like, this gang guy wants to kill this teenager and, like, we just deal with that for the rest of the episode, which uh, I agree with you, Chris, should have just forced them to make the episode, like, impetus about something else because it is a rough opening (laughs) that I didn't want to have to talk about on a podcast about burn notice. And yeah, and it, yeah, it truly does not matter. It really doesn't. For the story. But they force us to talk about it. Exactly. Yeah. That's the, that's the real problem. (laughs) That's the real crime. Is that they forced us to talk about it. (laughs) So uh, now that that scene is out of the way, Michael B. Jordan goes on a ride with Fee and Michael to go to the club that Felix does his business out of because it's Miami and every criminal has their favorite club. Um, This club is particularly funny to me, but we'll get to that when we actually go inside. So they're like parked across the street and everyone who is relevant to the plot comes across their vision at some point, super conveniently. So Michael B. Jordan um, identifies Felix as, quote, a stone cold gangsta pronounced like there's an A at the end. Um, you know, how teenagers talk. Yeah. And we get a lower you know third how, label. You know how black teenagers talk? Yeah. <sighs> I mean, it's a black writer, so yeah. that's something, but it's not much. I would give, I would bet $20 that Big Daddy Nicks rewrote some of the dialogue for him. Because um, oh, yeah. he didn't think it sounded black enough. I, uh. I guarantee that happened. Um, so, ugh, daddy, stay away this time. (laughs) Daddy. Um, so, uh, as Michael V. Jordan is, um, identifying Felix as a still cold, cold gangsta, we get the still frame of Felix with the lower third labeling him as gangster with an E-R. Thank God they spell it like that. I know. I was so worried because I knew it was about to happen, but thankfully they spell gangster properly um and then fiona in the voiceover not even voiceover but like as they're having this conversation disagrees while we're still on the freeze frame and she's like any grown man attacking a teenage girl is a pervert so the lower third switches to pervert which seems like a weird time to make a joke like a visual gag joke but okay the the show doesn't know how to handle things It really doesn't. So it shouldn't do it. Uh, So it turns out that the the big problem here is not the almost rape of a teenage girl, but that the whole gang that Felix works for is now out for Michael B. Jordan because Felix put the word on the street that he got beat up with a baseball bat and needs to kill this teen. Uh, Also, there is a guy named Tony Soto, the boss of the Stone Cold Gangstas, who also gets a lower third as the boss. Uh, He makes a lot of money from Felix boosting cars and thus wants to keep him happy. So he's kind of backing up Felix in finding this teenager to murder. So there's a whole ring of stuff going on and they need to figure out how to get uh, Michael B. Jordan off the shit list. That is the case of the week. Um, yeah. Michael's not thrilled because this job is much bigger than, uh, fair enough feels worth two free tickets to a Dolphins game. But, um, he reluctantly agrees because Fee is, as we've previously established, fired up. 
Back at the loft. More justice. <laughs> Back at the loft, Sam and Michael take turns forking pickles from the jar, like boys do. Sam com- uh, apologizes for the complexity and danger of this job, and Fiona comes up with a plan to make Felix a less desirable business opportunity by themselves becoming a rival car thief gang. Meanwhile, this means the teens need stashing. I wonder who has a room available. That's so, probably just some room at a Holiday Inn. <laughs> Sam's apartment, which we've never seen. Yeah. Um, Sam's car, because that's probably where he's living right now. So Michael, uh, but that they don't do that. They go to Madeline's house. So Michael apologizes to his mom for bringing the kids over, blaming Fiona's lady feelings uh, in an unnecessary line of dialogue. Um, but... We have to make sure that we know that, like, Fiona needs to get her emotions in check. It's just Do you rape. think they got a note from someone that was like, you wrote a story about sexual assault and they're handling it really casually. <laughs> and so they're like, okay, we'll make Fiona mad about it. <laughs> it could also be, why is Fiona calling the shots this week without any pushback? From a man who should be in charge. God. Also Both possible. situations are bad. There's no good situation. There's no good situation. They shouldn't have done this. Um, they and have done so, it. <laughs> so I, Mike- I also think in this scene, we get the return of nice Madeline. Yeah, it's very confusing, as it always is. So like, speaking of <laughs> specifically the Madeline who doesn't care about like or like is very understanding about Michael's business and his uh, former physical trauma at the hands of his father. But we'll get yes. there. <laughs> Because this, this episode's got to hit all of the good points. they got to deal with physical abuse. They've got to deal with rape. They've got to deal with child abandonment and perfect families. It's got it all. So anyways, so after as Michael is apologizing for bringing the kids over, Madeline's like, well, if you didn't bring people over, I'd never see you. So um, that happened. She also thanks him for getting Nate out of jail and the arrest erased from his record. And instead of saying, oh, yeah, no problem, Mom, he's like, actually, I had it done for me, which is functionally the same thing as doing it yourself, but okay, by some friends. And she's like, well, thank your friends for me. And he, equally unhelpfully, replies, well, my friends are the ones who got him arrested in the first place. Madeline remarks that his life is complicated, and then the scene is over, because I guess they didn't have any actual plot stuff for this scene, and they needed to justify having the mom on camera for a little bit. Yeah, And again, this is one of those times where suddenly she's like, I guess your life is complicated and doesn't worry about it instead of getting really upset about it. And like, why is your life complicated? Why do you have to go make things so complicated? <laughs> Acting like you're somebody else makes me frustrated. But it does make but it makes us. this episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this episode has gone off the rails so many times. I don't even have the capacity to care. So now we go to a makeover montage where the spy gang gets into uniform. Uh, They essentially just like look like men in black. They've got like crisp white shirts. Well, I guess Fiona has like a white tank top. They have black suits and suit jackets and sunglasses. Uh, Michael is also wearing a thick pinky ring. So, you know, they mean business. Um, They get an all whole nice slow motion walk. (laughs) And of Uh, course you know that's going to be the promo image for this episode. They do look particularly snazzy. They look so good. Uh, and so Michael, get... uncharacteristically wearing a dark suit. I know, 
I love it. He's wearing a dark suit in your episode too, but it's ill-fitting and I hate it. I just want to watch Jeffrey Donovan in nice tailored dark suits. Is that too much to ask? I don't know how it's so hard to get a suit that fits him. He is basically a mannequin. <laughs> I know. I don't understand. Ugh. Just let Jeffrey Donovan be hot, Burn Notice. I promise it you won't could, hurt anything. He could literally get a job wearing suits in a men's warehouse. Which, incidentally, is where they get all the suits for this show. <laughs> but, like, one size too big and only in beige. Anyways, so after they've had their little makeovers. All of their suits are donated from Men's Warehouse. <laughs> I mean, their Men's Warehouse is a proud sponsor of Burn Notice. We have to move on. We're not anywhere close to the first quarter of this episode, Chris. Um... Okay, so after their makeover montage, they drive up in a car next to Felix, who luckily has pulled over on the side of the road, and um, they pull up in the Charger, which I guess was fixed since last episode when Michael fell on top of it after a bomb exploded him, uh, and Michael throws a pepper grenade into Felix's car, and then they, the good guys, all pull guns. Sam walks around Felix's car and shoots out the tires with a shotgun in broad Miami daylight, I will remind you. And then Fee melts the engine block with thermite, and Michael tells Felix to leave Miami because there's a new crew in town. In the background of all of these shots, I don't know if you noticed this, regular-ass people are just walking by, going about their day, as there are explosions, a pepper grenade, and a shotgun shot four times, just in broad fucking daylight. The interaction is super loud and lasts at least a full minute in real life time, and no one is concerned at all. It just happens, and they drive away, and it's fine. It's fine. Here's what's confusing about this is that either the director was like, we need extras walking by because like we need to make the world look populated. So we need extras walking by, which is, of course, absurd. Or like those aren't extras and just they were filming this on a regular street and they couldn't totally block off the street. In either case, in the world of this episode, there are just people walking by as Sam in a black suit takes a shotgun to a person's car. I guess it's just like, it's Miami. That's what happens in Miami. It's a crazy town. And this is not the last time that this happens in this episode. I was watching. So anyway, so this happens. Felix is like, what the fuck? Uh, And his car is all jacked up and then they leave. So Michael B. Jordan is impressed by how bold his new friends are uh, and has been looking through mug shots at Madeline's, I guess, because he... Can I also say really quickly, like this, the whole, and they explain that the reason that they're in these nice costumes is because like, it's supposed to make them look impressive. Like this is like a really fancy high-end drug... Not yeah, there's the a whole spy stealing. tip about, like, the importance of uniforms and, exactly. like, the psychological and impact of uniforms. Exactly. But all this does is make them seem silly. It, like, <laughs> yeah. They look ridiculous. Do they identify themselves as also car boosters? 
Because something I note later on is that for like the first 38 minutes of this episode, they don't boost a single car. Um, actually, I, they, they never boost a car in the entire episode. They're like audition for the big bad guy at the end is them cleaning a previously boosted car. So they're just these like random ass men in black impersonators saying we boost cars without ever boosting cars. They're just causing chaos in the middle of Miami. Yeah, they look like like agents in a really low budget movie. <laughs> they're the background extras from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yes, that's exactly what they look like. Um, but yeah, so that happens. Uh, so Michael B. Jordan is impressed by their boldness and has been, I guess, looking through mugshots at Madeline's house. He identifies from these mugshots that we never saw him get handed uh, three of Felix's, quote, main boosters. When Madeline excitedly puts out a plate of saltine crackers uh, on a plate while still in the bag. It's like an insane presentation and she's so excited. And apparently they taste like cardboard because they're super old. And Madeline is like, oh, don't worry about it. Michael B. Jordan has been helping me clean out my pantry uh, because he's been eating all of her expired food, I guess. Uh, and one of the examples of this expired food that he's helping her get rid of uh, is a can of oysters that she's had, quote, since Michael was a baby. Michael B. Jordan remarks that they were a little salty, but really hit the spot. I'm not 100% sure what this scene is meant to be doing, but I like it. I, he's... He's the, a teen. I think he's They'll a teen. eat anything. Yeah, the thing is, like... But what does that observation do for us? Or for the story, or like, for the character? Absolutely because, nothing. But he ate okay. old oysters. <laughs> like... I mean, I think part of it is that he's a nice young boy. <laughs> and, like, the the trope of, like, nice young teenage boy is for some reason interwoven with the trope of teenager teenage boy who eats a lot of food. I don't know why that is. Or how it's like, relevant to this episode at well, all. Once again, it's I'm, a scene in Madeline's house that does not need to be there, but because they're at Madeline's house, they need to give her stuff to do. And so it's just like little quippy conversations back and forth that have no well, bearing I, on plot or character, but are there for, I don't know, reasons. I think like the idea is, I mean, A, just Michael B. Jordan is a nice young boy. And also like he's so... To point out that, like, maybe his life has been hard and so that he's just grateful for things. Because they have, like, Madeline and Michael have a whole conversation about, like, like later there's this thing about how Michael B. Jordan would be happy to have a family and Michael didn't like his family or something. You know what I mean? Like, there's some kind of commentary about family going on, but it's really not quite there. Yeah. And so he has to, like, this. This random old white lady's house has to be really nice for Michael B. Jordan. <laughs> well, I guess it is. Old oysters and all. There's a little bit of a blindside thing going on here. Oh, man. Yeah, we don't have time to get into that. So yeah. anyway, Sam goes to meet with uh, football coach Marchin again, who has heard, uh, similarly to Michael B. Jordan, about the whole car engine getting melted in the middle of the street. Uh, Sam tells him to keep his head down and to go in hiding himself for a bit, I guess because the gang might know that he's close with Michael B. Jordan. 
Uh, and then that scene is over. Then we have a sexy bomb-making montage while Fee, in a low sexy voice that does not make sense in the context of the scene, tells Michael she's made some progress on the other bomb, a.k.a. the one that almost killed Michael. There's a chance he works somewhere called ASA Dismantling, a city demolition contractor. This scene ends extremely bizarrely, with Fee semi-whispering, it's beautiful, at their finished bomb, and Michael semi-whispering, yeah, it's beautiful, back, and looking deeply into her eyes. Well, we have to set up that they're gone, Bob. <laughs> Do we? They've done it before. It's not a surprise. But, like... And she's single. They- they they stopped like they like because they did fuck a while back and then they made a concerted and then, effort to stop but yeah and they, yeah they made a con- so like something has to have changed but nothing does it's just they have a bomb making montage and then Michael tells her she's beautiful but in like a really weird way I mean yes but like because that's the thing that the episode is doing because again they have to set up that Michael cares about her because they're gonna like do this whole thing about it. And so they have to do this thing where he says, you know, it's it's very badly done. I understand what they're doing, though. <laughs> but this this episode, so this episode, I was texting Chris yesterday while I was watching it, took me like three and a half hours to watch because there's just so much happening. Every scene is perfect in an insane, beautiful way. And it just took much me a like long a bomb. Time. Much like a bomb. It just, there's a lot going on, as you have probably ascertained at this point. So anyways, the men in black are back, plus Fee. There's a lot going on. We don't have time to stop. (laughs) Ascertained. Ascertained. Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, the men in black are back, plus Fee, as they storm Felix's favorite club, where he's ranting to his crew that he wants to know who the fuck destroyed his car. For being a club that seems to be only occupied by a car-boosting crew of four that's open in the middle of the day with only them inside and is the size of a walk-in closet, it's very poorly patrolled. Michael and his buds blow up the fire exit to do said storming with the bomb that they made in that montage. Guns up, suits on. Michael introduces himself as Johnny with no discernible difference in like voice or performance, which I was a little disappointed by, but was willing to allow. Uh, throws a business I mean, card. <laughs> Johnny has kind of a voice. It's not like a. It was subtle. It's like it's subtle, but like, Johnny has like a voice. Johnny has a presence, it's, and I think yeah. And, and so it, I don't think it's a voice. I think it's like a performance that's different. Which is well, just yeah, like, it's a delivery. Sure. Yeah. Anyways. He's not talking like he's not talking like Michael Weston talks. Fair enough. Uh, but anyways, after he identifies himself, he throws a business card in the bar, you know, like how carjackers have business cards, and says that they're the new car thieves in Miami and that Felix and his buds have 48 hours to leave. They want him to leave the city and never come back. All of this inter-gang interaction has the gravitas of a high school production of West Side Story. Speaking of, uh, during this scene, Fee is pouring Michael a drink from the bar, you know, because they don't respect, like, how this is a for-profit establishment and you have to pay for drinks. Uh, Michael takes the drink from her after it's poured, but she continues to pour it and just douses the bar in liquor, but, like, totally stone-faced the entire time and is just, like, pouring it out until the bottle is empty. And she just, like, 
maintains eye contact behind her sunglasses and just pours out this liquor on the bar. And it's so fucking funny to me. It's possibly the best prop gag of the show. Um, and because Michael lists all of the reasons that Felix should hate Miami, um, like to sort of convince him that he needs to leave. And the last reason that he should leave Miami is plus your place is on fire because Fee lights all the liquor soaked bar on fire before all of them dramatically walk out. It's so good. It's such a bizarre scene, but it's the most fucking dramatic thing I've ever seen. And I loved it. Also, it made me think that for the love of God, please let there eventually be a scene where we watch all of these idiots write the script for their big alias entrances because they always have them and it can't possibly be improv because it's like, it's too coordinated. I want to watch the rehearsal of the Burn Notice crew like going over like, okay, so... So I think what you should do is you should pour me a drink, but like not pay for it, you know, because we don't like authority. And after you're, ooh, oh my gosh, I have this great idea. So after you're done pouring me the drink, like keep pouring and I'll like drink the drink. And then at the end, you can light it on fire. And um, okay, so like while you're pouring the drink, I'm going to like list out the reasons why he shouldn't like Miami. And then I'm going to end on, also your bar is on fire and that is your cue. So after I say that, that's your cue to light the bar on fire and then we'll like leave. All right, everybody good? Do you know the order? Okay, let's go. Do we want, do we want to do a run through? Yeah, Should do we want to do, do one more rehearsal? So, Sam, yeah. um, the, your blocking instructions are you need to be behind me because, like, I'm in charge, but I need you to be, like, a physical presence. So you need to be, like, pretty close behind me, but, like, not so close that I can't, like, use, like, the space around me. Like, I might kind of swing around. Like, I'm not really sure the physicality of this character yet. So, like, give me some space, but, like, make sure you're close enough to, like, seem physically imposing while still indicating that I am in charge. Do that thing where, like, you you hold your gun and you kind of raise it slightly, and it seems like you're doing something, but you're not. Yeah, just like that. Perfect. Actually, can you, like, tilt it to the left? Okay, and, like, take one step back? Okay, perfect. I'm just saying this would be a great episode or a scene this from an episode. This would be an amazing episode. <laughs> no, this is an episode. This, this is should a be, like, episode. a very, like, like, one of those, like, early Seinfeld, like, episodes that's all in one location <laughs> oh you mean like, like you this. mean like bad breaks which is coming out in two weeks which i'm so excited about yeah no i but like specifically like like the chinese restaurant episode of seinfeld where like i don't watch seinfeld we like literally the entire episode is like real time in a chinese restaurant <laughs> or like or there's one where they're like the whole episode is them wandering a parking garage. It's like just a whole a little playlet, if you will, about <laughs> them going to go into us. I would be so happy with that. I would be so happy with it, but unfortunately, that is not what we have. However, th- this performance that we just did on this podcast will hopefully tide you over. Anyways, back at the ranch, Fee and Michael head back to his loft, and Fee remarks again. Uh, about how Michael B. Jordan eats a lot, and Michael responds, he's a growing boy, in a weirdly low, sexy voice. And then Fee remarks that she likes this new Johnny alias uh, because it reminds her of Michael's alias back in Dublin when they first met. And then I'm just going to read you this conversation because, like, it's all insane. Uh, So Fianna goes, like, do you remember what you called yourself? And then Michael, quietly, in a bad Irish accent, says, Michael McBride. Wistfully, as if that wasn't a bad Irish accent, Fee wonders if it was really the alias that she fell in love with. And in a somehow worse Irish accent, Michael replies, I wouldn't be surprised. We caused a lot of mayhem, you and I. He was your type of guy. 
the Loki roleplay conversation continues with Michael with his Irish accent and Fee really seriously engaging with it. And it ends with her getting choked up about not knowing him at all and then going to the bomber's place of employment to follow up on her lead because I guess she's the only person actually investigating the bombing. And we're just not going to talk about how bad Michael's Irish accent is. Yeah, I don't know how she... It's such a charge. Did she scene. meet Michael McBride first? Yeah, she did. Because, like, she, they met while no. he was undercover. Exactly. And so, did she buy that? Apparently, because she's so, like, oh, earnestly God. into this conversation where she misses Michael McBride. It's, and he's just, like, quietly in a bad conversation. <laughs> it's so weird. It's so. It's, it reminded it's, me. It reminded me of the episode a couple of weeks ago where he's having his, like, religious, like, born-again speech on the phone while staring dramatically at Fiona, and she's getting really emotional. It was, like, that kind of energy, but instead of him being on the phone with, like, a mark, he's just talking in a quiet, bad Irish accent. Michael McBride. (laughs) It's, It's worse than that, though. Chris's accent just now was passable. Michael's was not. It was, his accent is like, whenever they would, David Boreanaz would do a flashback episode on Angel, my father. Oh, it's, it's so. But they play it so straight. Watching this scene, because like, they do play it so straight. And like, it's like watching two people, like watching a couple interacting in public and realizing it's a kink thing. I felt like I was having an aneurysm the whole time. Like, my brain cells were dying as I watched this scene, and I was slipping into the darkness. Also, I have a thing about this scene, and, like, in general, this concept. Because this is another one of those instances where, like, the show wants to play Michael like a cipher. And, like, Michael's kind of an... Like, Jeffrey Donovan's performance is kind of anonymous, yes. But, like, Michael Weston is a very clear person. Like, there's, like, he's not, like, a mystery. He's not ambiguous. He's Yeah, he's not ambiguous. He's, like, yeah, he's incredibly straightforward. Maybe it's ambiguous. Maybe it's just Michael Weston. (laughs) He's, and so, like, the idea of... Like, who are you really? No, he's like a guy who likes yogurt and doesn't want to work. <laughs> That's who Michael Weston is. And and is also a Boy Scout with daddy issues and women issues. Mm-hmm. And issues. And just issues. But, like, he's not, like, yeah, he's not mysterious in the slightest. Mm-mm. He really, really isn't. Um, but then that ends, thank God. And uh, Fiona puts on a hot little dress and very high heels and saunters kind of stumbling like into the bomber's day job, that demolition place, with a cover as a woman who makes sexy workman calendars. Her prop to showcase this is a stack of unopened calendars of sexy firemen, lumberjacks, cops, cowboys, etc. And now, she says dramatically, the men of demolition. And she's, like, talking to a foreman or something. Like, she, like, picks the hottest guy who I guess is in charge. And, like, this is who she's selling her cover to. She also says, quote, nothing turns on. Okay, no, sorry. I have to get the quote right. Quote, nothing turns a woman on more than when something goes boom. Followed by a hair flip 
is a line said dead seriously in this television show that aired on television for human beings to consume. And I'm obsessed with it. Here's the thing about this episode. This episode has the exact same sexual energy as our podcast. (laughs) It does! And I was like living for it. Fiona delivers all of her lines in this scene, side note, as if she's being orally pleasured just off camera, but is trying not to climax too early. She's like edging the entire scene. And it's so bizarre. And I just, I could not handle the energy. I had to pause this scene a lot, both to take down the literal line she was saying and like give myself a break from the absolutely insane energy. Uh, how this gets them closer to the bomber is explained in this scene, like the logic makes sense, but irrelevant to my recap, because the true takeaway from this scene is that we absolutely do not deserve Gabrielle Anwar. The work she does in this scene alone is proof of that. It's, it really is. It's, (laughs) it's spectacular. This is a very silly episode of television. It's like, but it's not even just silly because some of it is played like super straight. Like he doesn't realize it's silly. This episode is unhinged. This episode is so unhinged from reality that like, it's very hard to follow, even though all the stuff is there to give me a, like, you know, the, the breadcrumbs to follow, but I can't, I can't follow it. It is so unhinged. It's like an uncanny Valley episode of television. And I'm obsessed with this it. episode needs to take its meds. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It needs to go off them for like one or two more days. That's when the really good shit's going to happen. So next we have another insane scene. Thank God. Uh, it's a fun montage of each of the men in black plus Fiona taking down a different member of Felix's carjacking gang as identified by the photos that Michael B. Jordan gave them, which ends in all three of these guys getting zip tied, gagged and left outside of Felix's club. Also in broad Miami daylight with said men's plus Fiona in black standing across the street, holding a loaded shotgun. Notable in this scene is a like little yellow Volkswagen beetle in a parking lot just behind where they are holding a very large shotgun in broad daylight. Regular people are literally walking by this entire scene. How the fuck could they have possibly timed the like zip tying, displaying, and then eventual altercation with said shotgun without anyone calling the police? It's I, yeah. Unfathomable. The thing is that like they're both there. And, like, Michael says, basically, do you want to start shooting? We're in public. Yeah. As if 2009 Ben Watkins read our minds, during this phone conversation from across the street between Michael and Felix, in this, like, little standoff, Felix threatens to shoot Michael, and Michael revealing his own gun. So now there is a second gun in public. He asks, do you really want to do this in front of all these people in broad daylight? Do you, Michael? This previously identified, quote, stone-cold gangsta moodily looks around him, not unlike Poldark moodily looks at the sea, and silently agrees it's too public to have a shootout. Then Michael gets another phone call. It's Tony Soto. Remember him from, like, eight scenes ago? Uh, It's Felix's boss calling for Johnny. Uh, Tony Soto has sent a car and wants to meet in person. And to guarantee his safety, he's leaving two of his own people unarmed with Fee and Sam. This is never brought up again. I guess everyone goes home safe. 
Yeah. So uh, <laughs> now we go to Tony Soto's favorite club across town, I guess. And Tony Soto reveals that he likes Johnny's style. And if Felix can let himself get punked like this and get his ass kicked by a 17-year-old, well, he can't have that kind of weakness in his house. So again, Felix earns Tony Soto money by jacking cars, a thing that Michael has not done or proved he can do. But Michael claims that Felix is an amateur. He doesn't say amateur He's, or amateur. He says amateur. Felix again, because he am- is doing a voice. <laughs> I think he just. Is, I think this is another fondant thing where no, Jeffrey Donovan doesn't know how to pronounce amateur. The thing is, he's doing a voice. I don't know exactly what it is. Sometimes it is almost southern, but a different southern. Like it's like s- southern, but they've moved away. Yeah, I hate to say this because I hate to bring the specter of this person on a, a podcast that already has the uh, talked about things. He reminds me of, like, Kevin Spacey doing Frank Underwood in House of Cards. I never watched House of Cards. I always found Frank Spacey or whatever the hell's name is creepy. Yeah, no, he's incredibly creepy. And, like, but it's that, it's the same energy to Johnny. Just, like, and it's the same kind of cadence. And it feels very weird. Yeah, I and think it's this like, scene is weird. It's, like, a weird person. Like, this is... A very specific idea of, like, a cool, competent bad guy person. Where they're kind of mumbly and have a weird kind of almost sing-songy cadence, but, like, not really. And it's just, it's, it's so dumb. It's it's deeply weird. Um, so anyway, so Felix is an amateur. And Michael's team deals in high-end cars and sells them overseas at a markup. How do they get past customs? They clean them and clone them. Untraceable. What does this mean? Who knows? But Johnny says it in a cool guy voice, so Tony's convinced. He just wants to see if they can deliver. So they just got a high-end car off the streets, and he wants to see if Michael and his Men in Black gang can clean it and clone it, which is good, because I also want to see this, because it means fucking nothing to me. So then Sam and Michael meet at Madeline's garage with the stolen car, and Sam relays to Michael that Felix, pissed at how weak he's looking, has put out word on the street to find Michael B. Jordan, which I thought he'd already done, but I guess it's worse now. But now he's like back on the prowl for the teenager and this is fine so cool then we have a quick montage of working over the stolen car and sam takes it out for a joyride while michael goes to meet carla again remember they had a meeting scheduled for him to go over the information that she found him that was irrelevant can i say like i'm sure it well i'm sure it is not an easy thing to do to clean and clone a car uh but it doesn't seem that hard No, it really doesn't. Like, he's doing it in his fucking mom's garage. Yeah. This is not a high-end operation type thing. But whatever, I guess. So, um... They look like secret agents in a movie about a talking dog. (laughs) Who hate fun and teenagers and are going to be taken down by both. Yes. So Michael goes to meet Carla, and this time, instead of going all the way to her office, they just meet in the back of her car, which takes about one minute of screen time. And she tells him that he has two names, two days to make progress on this list of names she found of people who blow stuff up in Europe. Basically, he is leading her on a wild goose chase, but she's engaging super seriously. And that's it. Thanks, Carla. So we cut to Michael B. Jordan and his sister looking at family photos of Michael with Madeline. But not even from a scrapbook. It's just a framed photograph 
that they're looking at that on the table. Like she has she gone around the house and like taken frames off the wall so they can like look at them together in one place. It's very bizarre. It should have been in a scrapbook. But anyways, it's a framed photograph from like a Christmas in their childhood when Michael was 15, apparently. And he also very clearly has a black eye when like we get the insert of the photo. Tanya, apparently not seeing the black eye, bemoans that she and Michael B. Jordan never had a family like that. Quote, neither did we, sweetheart, says Madeline kindly, and then points out the black eye. Apparently Michael got this from defending Nate from their father. And to lighten the mood after that revelation, Madeline says that she threatened to throw dinner down the garbage disposal unless her two physically abused sons and her abuse of alcohol husband stood to take this very photo and instead of asking the very reasonable question about whether or not madeline is a sociopath michael b jordan's first question is he fought his dad on christmas and then the scene ends (laughs) what the fuck is this scene like again the weird thrust or message of this scene is that like this like yeah these two black children who lost their parents have a hard time. But you know who else had a hard time? Michael Weston. <laughs> All he right, bought well. his dad on Christmas. <laughs> that's a that's a quote. I had to replay that section to make sure that I got it exactly. Um, anyways, let's shake that off from us because Fiona is in a tight skirt again and goes back to the demolition place to get the name of the bomber via headshots and names of all the employees under the guise of casting them for their sexual sexual their sexual demolition dude calendar uh which as i will remind you is the greatest cover idea of all time and she finds him uh because they have a photo of him already the guy's name is derek Poole, and he only works part-time at this demolition place michael and sam learn about this while they get dressed up in their crisp white shirts at the loft but before they can finish their looks there's a knock at the door it's the coach and he's bleeding So apparently Coach Martin got jumped by Felix and his gang, who said that if he didn't set up a meeting with Michael B. Jordan, they'd start going after the rest of his high school football players. Michael tells him to set up the meet because it's time for the end game. Uh, Only 10 years before (laughs) Avengers Endgame. Uh, but of course they, they, you gotta, you know, they're grown boys as Michael would say. So they go get lunch and over lunch, Sam and Michael discuss the obvious ambush address that Felix gave the coach for his just to talk meetup with Michael B. Jordan. Felix has done this kind of thing before, apparently, which is lure someone to an alley to talk, box them in with cars and shoot them dead. So at least they know what's coming <laughs> because, you know, there was another option for this meet. Uh, they quickly bulletproof a car I've never seen before just for this occasion with super expensive upgrades paid for by the Dolphins tickets they're getting out of this job. I don't know. Like they, at one point, Michael even acknowledges that like one of the things that they're doing to the car is pretty pricey, but important. And I'm like, okay, where's that money coming from? My dude. It's, it's, um, it's Michael B. Jordan's car. Yeah. Well, I, that's revealed in the next section of the outline, Chris. Oh, uh, okay. I wasn't sure. It's, it's a yeah. reveal, because, like, the audience isn't supposed to know whose car it is. Is it? I... Okay. We've never seen it before. Are we, we have not... never, ever seen no, it. No, I know, but do car. they not say in the scene that it's his car? Like, here's... I don't think okay, they do. I think the happens. reveal is it drives by, and then we see Felix in a car going, that's Michael B. Jordan's car. But that's... Okay, here's the thing. I watched this episode. <laughs> I, I, I want you guys to know. I watched this episode, um, and we got to that moment later where they drive by, 
and they like they go, oh, that's that's Michael B. Jordan's car. He's famous, and <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's who car this is. I must have missed that when they said that in the earlier scene to set that up. It no, never they, in a million years occurred it. to me that that's a reveal. Why would that be a reveal? Why was Fiona like edging for an entire scene? I the question I just assumed... is not why, Chris. It's why isn't there oh, more? I don't know. <laughs> so, anyways, Chris spoiled it, but the car that they're bulletproofing is Michael B. Jordan's car. It can't be a reveal. <laughs> it doesn't. Why would it be a reveal? they didn't want to have an overly expositional montage of bulletproofing a car you know because this show hates exposition and never does it in super awkward ways oh my god okay (laughs) Michael goes to drop off his clean and cloned car with Tony Soto who is impressed I guess and wants to see the rest of his operation so Tony Soto gets into their newly bulletproofed car remarking on its boringness but Michael assures him it's just so they can stay under the radar because you know it wouldn't be good to be like high-class car thieves driving around in high-class cars um, to nondescript areas of town Um, so this is where it is revealed that the car that they're in is actually Michael B. Jordan's car because Felix recognizes it and it turns out that Michael has driven Tony to Felix's ambush and allows Felix to shoot at them to create a fatal misunderstanding and after several point-blank automatic weapon shots into the hastily bulletproofed car uh uh-huh michael drives off to take tony to safety and tell him to get rid of this loose end because otherwise he won't do more cloning and cleaning uh they meet with coach back on the football field Felix and his crew cleared out of Miami in a surprisingly bloodless end to this episode upon learning yeah i assumed that they were dead yeah, I know. that. I mean, we hear a man die in the next episode, but we'll get to that. But yeah, so that everything's fine. Felix and his gang have left, and now Tony Soto is out of car thieves because, you know, Michael's not actually a car thief. But he could be. Coach fork, forks over the tickets that they earned, plus a third ticket because, quote, I heard there was a lady doing most of the work. Which is funny because she's actually she's also the only person working on the other case of the week too. So, you know, go Fiona, girl power, etc. Fiona has discovered the bomber's house, but suspects he hasn't been there in a while because like the newspaper is stacking up outside. And while on the phone with Michael telling him that she found Derek Poole's house, she decides to go in on her own while Sam and Michael make their way over to her, which Michael strongly advises she does not do. And Fiona's like, it's going to be fine. But when she breaks into the house, she steps onto a hidden trigger under the carpet, which lights the whole place on fire with her inside. Cut to outside the burning house. So dumb. (laughs) Why? Why is... Why is Fee so dumb in this scene? Well, because she's frustrated that she's the only one doing any work. And it's like, you know what? I'll just do it myself. Okay, but like, literally, like, she's a bomber. Yeah, but Fee, like, Fee is not it, a subtle bomber. Fee's bombs go off immediately and you know they're there. The thing is that, like, I, I okay, I'm not a bomber. Are you like, prepared to say that for the record in front of God? Yeah. Yes. I I am not a bomber, but I watched this episode. Um, and I knew that that house was rigged. 
Like, that house was obviously rigged because he's a bomber. Like, like, there's no way that Fee's apartment is not rigged. Like, yeah, she would never risk her snow globe collection. She just doesn't keep anything incriminating in the house. Duh. And, like, so obviously this place was going to blow up. And, like, it just, Fee has to be really stupid in this moment. And it's very frustrating to me. Yeah, it's too bad because she spent the entire episode being the only competent person and the only one who cares about sexual assault against teenage girls, I guess. So, anyways, the last time we see Fiona is inside a burning house. We cut outside of the burning house where firefighters have set up a perimeter and Michael is desperately trying to get a hold of Fiona on the phone uh, while driving up to the house. He freaks the fuck out and has to be restrained by like five firefighters as he watches this house fry, then drives away, calling again to Fiona in desperation. Uh, He arrives home at night, so Time has passed. It's nighttime and it's pouring rain. It's so pour- I think we all so much sad rain. So I think we all know what's about to happen. <laughs> the rain is the best cue. But yeah, like he's walking through the rain, like which is just you know like the sea, but from the sky. <laughs> <laughs> and he stares at the rain and he walks in drenched. Yeah, he walks in drenched and he's like so upset that he can like barely lock his own door. It's like it's like his arms weigh so much he can't even lift them. Like that's how desperately sad he is. The outside reflects what's going on inside. But then what's that? Behind him, he hears the voice of Fiona as she calmly relays that she's totally fine and that her cell phone got burned up. Uh, and there's an unopened yogurt on the counter in front of her, which is important because yogurt count. Um, (laughs) It's not open. Nobody eats it, but it's there. Uh, Michael, soaking wet, slowly and silently walks up to her and, like, touches her face really dramatically, and they both stop talking. It's so weirdly. It's so weird. He, like, touches her face like... No human has ever touched another human's face. <laughs> it's like he got, he's like Tom Hanks from Castaway, where he finally comes back to society after like five years of living alone with a volleyball and he doesn't know how to interact with other human beings anymore. Like, that's what the energy of this scene is. And so he just like sort of touches her face like he has amnesia and has never seen another person. And then they start making out really dramatically. Yeah. Uh, then the next morning, presumably, we see Michael quietly slip back into his apartment with what looks like breakfast and coffee, I guess to surprise a sleeping and sexed up Fiona he left in bed, but it's not Fee he finds waiting, but Carla. So I guess Fiona left (laughs) at some point in between. I like to imagine that Carla gets there to do her, like, reveal thing where she's, like, sneaking into his apartment to, like, be there when he gets home, uh, and Fiona is still there, like, getting dressed, and she's like, oh, hey, what's up, Carla? Oh, nothing much. Sorry, were you doing something? Should I come back later? Oh, no, no, no. I'm on my way out. Like, you can you can chill here. Uh, can you lock the yeah. door behind me, though? I didn't bring my key. <laughs> Again, <laughs> these are the scenes that I want from this episode. Not the actual scenes we get, but, like, what happened right beforehand. Anyways, Fiona's not there. Carla is there. And Carla is upset that Michael is running around town playing dress up with his friends instead of helping her. Funny how all of her... Uh, how all of a sudden her omnipotence has conveniently reached its limits and she didn't hear about Fee's activities with a burning building and hot demolition studs. The episode ends confusingly with Michael calling Fiona and once again getting her voicemail. So Which sad. Which I think is clever. You think is clever. I think that's a clever, like, beat. All right. So, uh, it's time for spy tips. 
So there was a lot of them that I thought were good this time, but that means that some of them you might disagree with, which is fine because that's what this podcast thrives on, conflict. Uh, So spy tip number one that I thought was practical. Spies love technology upgrades. When someone replaces old equipment, a computer, a PDA, uh, getting information comes as easily as looking through the trash. When you need to steal information in a hurry, just arrange the technology upgrade yourself. Yeah, no, that's good. I'm fine with that. PDAs. It's 20, 2009, Michael. No, it's not even, two, it's 2010, isn't it? It's, no, 2010. it's 2010. No, it's no, 2009. Are you sure? I thought we were exactly a decade ahead now. It's tw- it's 2020, well, Chris. Oh, shit. We established yeah. it's 2020. Man, That's we had right, a whole running right. bit was... about the decade, we did. but it's not a decade. It's 11 years. God, they're going to know that oh. we're bad at math. They can't know that. They can't know that. Oh, no. Um, okay, but that's a Time good Time is tip. meaningless. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. Uh, next, if you need to buy a few seconds in an office environment, programming a thing that calls every phone in an office at once is, quote, simple and cheap. Just set up your cell phone to trigger the call remotely. No. I like... The, okay, For- so what I like about this is that a good distraction in an office environment is calling people's phones and making it seem like they have a thing going on <laughs> the actual execution of this i find questionable like yeah a they don't really explain how it's done and b like having every phone go off at the same time is ridiculous that's fine i don't really care uh yeah goodbye <laughs> i also transpose this one even though i think it's a bad tip to get out of an office quickly it's okay to run people run out of offices all the time if the look on your face says i'm in a hurry you can go as fast as you want it's all about covering ground before the yelling starts i was i was more like fair to this tip than you were so we'll keep this one okay um people run out of offices all the time okay uh next there's a reason armies wear uniforms even though they make them easier to spot sometimes that's what you want uniforms suggest organization power and numbers these in turn inspire fear and as any good operative knows there is no more effective weapon than fear which leads to anger and anger leads to hate and hate leads to suffering i feel like that's how i feel about how we got the rise of Skywalker. <laughs> but that's a conversation for another time. Uh, is this tip practical? I mean, nah, I like, if you want to keep it, we can keep it. I feel like <laughs> about it. I mean, I wouldn't have thought that like, in order to be a good, like effective gang, you should have a uniform, but like him explaining like why uniforms are important and what they can exemplify, I thought was interesting. Okay. All right, then I'll take it. All right. Next pepper grenades are used by anti-terrorist units to disable and stun not lethal, but a face full of pepper gas will keep you pretty busy. This is like a shopping (laughs) tip. That's yeah, it's fine. I'll take that. I do love the implication of, like, it'll keep you pretty busy. <laughs> if someone throws, like, a pepper grenade at you, are like, God, I'm so busy now. <laughs> There's a lot to unpack here. Uh, someone, like, just, like, someone throws a grenade at you and you get a phone call and you're just like, not now, I'm busy. <laughs> uh, cool. 
Uh, next, melting through the engine block of a car isn't hard. Just a few pounds of thermite in a coffee can with a fuse will do the trick and put on a pretty good show. I always love to see my old buddy thermite. <laughs> and a nice old shopping list. Coffee mm-hmm. can, thermite, fuse. Battlestar Galactica. Uh, when you need to get into a building in a hurry, you can always count on a fire exit. Every building has them. It's just about knowing how to use them. A big enough charge will put enough of a dent into a steel door to disengage the lock, which can turn a fire exit into a convenient and unexpected entrance. A coil of debt cord attached to a rubber mat will give you the explosion you need and allow you to point it wherever you need to go. SWAT teams call it a hockey puck. Like that a lot. No, that's a good... Yeah, I like that one. Yeah, that was pretty good. Uh, There's an element of theater to any offensive campaign. It's not just about bullets and bodies. Killing people usually just creates more problems than it solves. (laughs) Useful reason not to murder. Uh, It's about undermining your opponent's will to fight, destroying the morale of his troops, sending the message that fighting back is useless because the battle is already lost. This one I'm also kind of vague on. I'm willing to get rid of it now that I'm rereading it. It's not great. I kind of feel the same way about this one, though, that I feel about the uniforms one. And, like, I'll keep the uniforms one. Because that's that's slightly more practical. They they already have more than five. Like, this episode's going to get... Oh, well, yeah, so I so I, I don't feel the need to, to fight you on that. Uh, okay, yeah, next. and it just seems like with this tip and the other tip, it was like an excuse to, to play act, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so next by tip between the license, registration, tax records, and VIN numbers, it's surprisingly hard to turn a car into cash. The best approach is to start with clean paperwork on another car from out of state, then match the stolen then match the stolen to the clean paperwork. That means new VIN tags and a new registration. And in case someone decides to check closely, some hydrochloric acid in a file will make the etched VIN number on the chassis impossible to read. Yeah, that's cool. I'm fine with that. That's useful information. Let's go steal a car. Next, there are a couple of ways to make a car bullet resistant. $60,000 worth of titanium sliding will do the job, or you can pick up a couple extra copies of the yellow pages from your local phone company. Most non-armor-piercing bullets will only penetrate a phone book to the depth of an inch or two. Behind a layer of steel, it's more like a quarter of an inch. Commercially available foam sealants will keep your tires rolling long enough for you to get out of danger. And for the windows, dual-layer high-density plexiglass is your best bet. It's expensive, but bulletproof glass is not the sort of thing you skimp on. I mean, that's, yeah, that's I do a chock full where, one. <laughs> that's a chock full one. This feels like an episode of Burn Notice that they could have done an episode of Mythbusters about. <laughs> Actually, that, man, Mythbusters definitely should have done like a whole season of just Burn Notice bullshit. <laughs> I would have been so happy about that. They should come back together for like a special mini season, just myth busting burn notice. Um, okay, so but we it's so we, burn notice is so hot right now. There's a <laughs> podcast about it and everything. <laughs> oh, all right, all right, and final spy tip that I thought was practical. When you booby trap someone else's place, you put the trigger in the door or just inside so the odds of tripping it are much higher. If you rig your own place, the trigger has to be further inside so you can safely enter. A trip wire is a quick and dirty version, but a contact plate under the rug is completely undetectable. Put a little accelerant in the walls and there's a reason they call it a fire trap. 
What's the reason? Because you're trapped in fire. Get oh. It? Okay, yeah. yeah. Now I get it. Now it's, it's, like, really, it's like really clever wordplay. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, wow. Cool. So, so that's nine. We found nine Ooh. practical spy tips in this episode. This unhinged monstrosity of an episode. So it already oh. gets uh, a point for that. It does. It gets a point for that. Uh, do they solve the weekly problem using spycraft over violence? Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's also a lot of violence. There's but... a lot of violence. But it's mostly like flashy play acting violence. It's theater. <laughs> it's theater. Because as we established in like an episode a couple of weeks ago, what Michael Wesson really wants to be is an actor. He does. He, he's in it for the role playing. Um, so, okay. So that's two. Like Michael uh, McBride. Did... <laughs> Michael McBride. Uh, speaking of Michael McBride, uh, was did we debut or revisit a distinct alias? Yes. Yes. Both Johnny and Michael McBride, I would argue. So And also and also the like Louisiana guy from the opening was also very good. That's true. And Fiona plays a constantly on the cusp of coming woman who makes sexy uh workman calendars. Yeah. And oh, I think that that was iconic. That was. <laughs> All right. And finally, speaking of Fiona, man, these segues are just like coming hot and fast. Uh, uh-huh. Were the side characters used well? Yes. Although, like, Sam? it wasn't a great episode for Sam. No. Yeah, like... it wasn't a great episode for Sam. I mean, he had a couple of moments, but like not not very high highs. He was no, this was like a fee quiet episode. and smoldering in the background. Yeah, but I, you yeah. know what? I'm not mad about it because usually what gets this tenant the pass is it's a good Sam episode because it's a lot easier to make a good Sam episode than a good fee episode. Um, so, yeah, so that's a that's a four for four, baby. This is scientifically proven to be a great episode of Burn Notice. Now here's the hard. <laughs> the part. thing. This <laughs> is the thing about this episode. I had this in my notes. This seems like an episode of Burn Notice that was tailor-made for us. It really does. It also kind of seems like an episode of Burn Notice that was written by one of those, like, predictive bots where you feed a bunch of Burn Notice episodes into a computer and it spits out what it thinks another episode would be. It's like something is just a little bit off. (laughs) So it's all just a little bit magical realism. That's the thing, because... I was watching this episode thinking, like, this is bonkers. <laughs> it's 100% bonkers all the time. Why don't I enjoy it more? <laughs> it was a wild ride. It's and, like, and I wanted. I want to give it like props for being so un, like so truly unhinged, but. Because of all of the insane plot holes, I don't think we can in good conscience call it a great episode of television, but it was a great hour of television. I enjoyed myself because I just could not believe what was happening. And every time we ended a truly banana scene, there was an additional, even more banana scene right afterwards. And it was, I, I, but it really, it felt like a be careful what you wish for episode in a way. I refuse like, to be careful. I want more unhinged insanity. Like, this was the thing, was that, like, all of it was, like, bonkers. Truly mm-hmm. wild and weird and out 
the whole time I was watching, I was like, oh, this is wild. I should be enjoying it. And it wasn't that I wasn't enjoying it. But, like, the whole time, and it it really felt like testing the limits of giving us what we want. Um <laughs> And but like, what we specifically want, you and I, well, and we I think sp- you and I have very different needs from Burn Notice than most of the viewing public. I mean, this is true. But also, like, I don't know. I've been thinking a lot about, like, whether or not it's good to give uh, fans what they want after seeing a certain Star Wars movie. and <laughs> A Star Wars movie that shall not be named. Yeah, I think it's not just, like... The plot holes. Although I do think there is some good plot construction in this episode. I do think, like, because this is one of those episodes of Burn Notice where nothing goes wrong for them. Other than, like, the fee thing. But in the, like, plot, in the, like, case of the week, nothing ever goes wrong for them. And so it does do, like the smart thing. I think it's very smart about the fact that, like, okay, if they're just going to succeed all the time, then there has to be, like, different complications. They have to be doing different things. I really did like how suddenly the boss got involved, and then, like, the stakes changed, and, like, you know, like, I thought that was smart. Yeah. I I thought there was a lot of smart, clever things in this episode, too. Like, but it was just, I don't know, like, it was so much. It was like, a lot. It was extremely it was, a lot. It was too much. It was just Well, I don't want to go so far as to say sweet. it was too much because I do want more. I absolutely want more. Oh, I, yeah, I cannot in good conscience call it a good episode of television either. <sighs> Neither can I. So we have established that this is an episode of television that is a great episode of Burn Notice. And Possibly the greatest episode of Burn Notice. <laughs> Possibly the greatest episode of Burn Notice. Um, and with that, thank you again to Vincent E.L. for our theme music. You can find more music from Vincent at vincentel.bandcap.com. And until next week, bye. I, I don't have words. <laughs>